The sponsor for The Shepherd's Crook for the month of April is Zero Mile Mark. For a limited time only, listeners can head over to ZeroMileMark.com and take advantage of the free tent promotion. Zero Mile Mark is a veteran-owned company that strives to offer high-quality, active outdoor sports gear. They're on mission to get people outdoors by offering an array of products like tents, backpacks, hammocks, sleeping pads, lighting, and more. All sales have a 30-day warranty and ship via two-day shipping to 97% of the United States. It's a free tent. It's easy checkout. It's fast shipping. Head over to ZeroMileMark.com and add any item into your shipping cart. And when the cart exceeds $30, a tent will appear automatically for $0. It's ZeroMileMark.com. Check it out today. I personally know their owner, Brian. He's a great guy, and he's partnered with us to do a great giveaway. It's a 35-liter outdoor pack and their dome tent. You can follow the links in the show notes and sign up today. Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. The Shepherd's Crook exists to provide care, counsel, and resources for pastors. You can get more information at theshepherdscrook.co. My name is Jared Sparks, and I'm a pastor coming alongside other pastors, reminding them of the chief pastor. Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. I am delighted to talk with a man that I have learned a lot from over the years, and just excited to have a, a good conversation with him about a book that he has written, uh, written many years ago now. Uh, but I get to talk with John Eldridge today. John, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, Jared. Thanks for having me on. Good deal. Well, why don't we go ahead and pray? And then I've got a lot of questions for you that have been just pent up in me for about a decade now. So <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. we'll keep this under five or six hours, hopefully. Awesome. <laughs> All right, Father, we just... Thank you for this opportunity to have to talk as brothers. I thank you for a man that's walked this road many years, uh, even years longer than I have, and I'm thankful to learn from him. And I just ask, Holy Spirit, that you would lead us in this conversation. I pray that you would put a huge spotlight right on Jesus for us. Uh, We thank you for the finished work of Christ and uh, that unites us as brothers, uh, John and I. And I just thank you for this opportunity. Lead the conversation. I trust that you will. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Yes. Amen. Okay. Well, for those who do not know you, may, may not have heard of your work, would you please just tell us a little bit about yourself and then your family and then what it is that you do? Yep. So for 30 years, uh, I was a Christian therapist. Um, I'm an author. live in Colorado with uh, my wife, Stacy. Been married, oh man, 37 years this year. Wow. Uh, lo- loving that. And we raised three boys. They're now in their late 20s. They're married and starting families of their own. They love Christ, which I'm very grateful for. In our work now, I actually don't have a private practice anymore now because I uh, became an author and loved it and realized I could touch a lot more lives that way. Um, I miss the days, actually, of, of the private counseling practice. But uh, we have a ministry now called Ransomed Hearts, and we we do retreats for men, retreats for women. We do them in the U.S., but we also do them around the world. Uh, we have a podcast. We make films. We kind of do the, um, it, it's almost like a group uh, sort of uh, counseling in the sense of we, we help people deal with their story. We help them heal from childhood wounds and, and help them find a richer life in God. Fantastic. Fantastic. Now, I've had many people ask me, my sons, one of my sons, we have two boys and we're on the front end of this. So we have a five-year-old and a two-year-old. 
Oh, fabulous. Yes. Both. Yeah. Boys. They're just all boy. We're having a lot of fun fishing. Uh, we're just, this is our thing right now is fishing. But when my oldest son is, his name is Ransom. And so people have asked, you know, did you get it from the, the space trilogy from C.S. Lewis? And then with Ransomed Heart, no, we just uh, had a, a great, great grandfather whose name was, his name was Ransom. And so oh, that's where no we got kidding. it. But yeah, that's strong, awesome strong name, name though. So Ransomed Heart, it's fantastic. Okay. Uh, why don't we backtrack a little bit then? And let's just ask the question about when you became a Christian. And then at the end of this, by the way, I, I'm going to give a surprise question to you and you can kind of put it in your mind right now. I'm going to ask you why you, the last question I ask people I interview is why do you love Jesus? I set you up to praise the grace mm -hmm. of God. And, uh, but on the front end, I just want to ask when you became a Christian, tell us the story of when you, when you met Christ. So I did not grow up in a believing home. I grew up in what would probably be called a pretty typical American agnostic home. <clears throat> My parents uh, were married their whole lives, but um, they were both alcoholics and it was mm -hmm. a pretty broken home. Uh, my dad really broke my heart, really blew the family up. <clears throat> and I, I was very spiritually hungry in high school. I, I was looking for the meaning of life and I tried everything. Uh, it was kind of C.S. Lewis's story. Um, he tried everything and, and found Christ. I, I got into new age mysticism. I got into Eastern religions. I got into martial arts. I, I was just looking, looking, looking for something that, um, that had meaning to it. And this is in the seventies in LA. So the drug culture, the hippie movement, um, I was part of all that. And I had a pretty radical encounter with Jesus when I was mm -hmm. 18. Um, and I, I thank God forever for it. I, I was desperately, desperately searching for the truth. And I wasn't finding it in all that stuff. The new age writing is just so goofy. And I, um, you know, we go out in the desert and look for God in these Native American rituals. And I, I, I um, none of it worked. And mm. I remember I was in my bedroom one night and I, I felt the presence of Jesus Christ in the room. Wow. And I, I said, Jesus, I had been reading a little bit about Jesus, but I just thought he was one of those other great teacher guys. I didn't know mm -hmm. how absolutely unique he was. And everybody said their gospel with me. I'd never heard it, never read a Bible. Hmm. Uh, he just showed up and rescued me. And in my salvation prayer, I, I was like this. I said, Jesus, uh, my life is a mess and I don't know what to do, but I have a feeling that you do. And so if you would help me, uh, please help me. Hmm. And, and he came in like, boom, like I, you know, two weeks later, I'm totally off drugs. Three weeks wow. later, I'm in a church. I mean, it was a radical, it was the talk of my town because <laughs> I was a pretty wild kid in high school. You know, I had a police record. I got kicked out of high school. Wow. <clears throat> I was a really small, I was a really smart kid, but I just wouldn't go to class. And, and so it was the talk of the town. What? John Elders became a Christian? You know? <laughs> right. <clears throat> and it's, uh, it's stuck. Huh. Yeah. God has a way of doing that, shocking people with who he uses, who he saves. And that's just yep. powerful. Yep. All right. Well, I've read all of your books at this point. I have a interesting history with you. I grew up in a Bapticostal type of church that started off Southern Baptist and then they got the Holy Spirit, whatever that meant in the seventies and eighties. And, and we're part of the kind of the charismatic renewal movement. I go to Pentecostal college 
And then I work with Southern Baptist in the summertime and it's a collision course of, of Holy cow. Yeah. It's a collision course of people that are nervous about each other. And I'm kind of in the middle of it proved to be really (laughs) profitable, really profitable for me. God used that, but I had stepped away from, I'd read wild at heart in high school, 2002. I think the book came out and was it 2001? Yep. Okay. And read it and then put it on the shelf. And then theologically, I just went through a, a massive transformation in several different cat, just categories and um, had removed a lot of uh, stuff that I had le- learned from and, and heard from in the past. And then years later, there was a friend of mine, my dad's friend who came alongside of me and we walked through Father by God together. And it was a crucial time for me. And I pulled all your stuff back off the shelf and I just started reading and it was really life-giving. And I'm so thankful for what God has done. But what I've found working with pastors in particular with the shepherd's crook is that fathered by God has a unique, um, has a unique way of helping pastors think through their story. But before we get there, I just want to ask you about wild at heart. What, what were some of the factors in 2001 that you think contributed to the wild success? What, why was it ripe for that book in evangelicalism and even just not just in our country, but around the world? What was it about that time that Wild at Heart was so well received by the masses? What do yeah. you think? <clears throat> well, we were, we were experiencing the train wreck of the divorce generation. So mm. it was no fault divorce came in. Uh, and there were a lot of guys that had grown up without a dad or without a dad really present and involved. He might've been home, but he Mm -hmm. was gone at work a lot. And so what we hit um, was a lot of gender confusion. You know, we had the feminist movement saying, we don't want men to be so manly. We want them to be a little bit more like women. And we had a lot of guys who had grown up without dads. Uh, We had a lot of broken homes at that point. And so it, all of that was coming to this cultural crisis of we don't know really what it means to be a man anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and then God just brought this message. He just, he just dropped it into that cultural moment. And here's the wild thing, Jarrett, that 20 years later, wild at heart is, is more relevant than ever. Because now that was gender confusion. Now we have gender collapse. Yeah. Like, like people don't even think gender is a category anymore. It's it's crazy. Yeah. It's a spectrum upon which, you know, you can kind of move and change and that sort of thing. It's very heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it it is a move of God. That is the only explanation for it It, because, Mm -hmm. you know, books, the typical book lasts five months. Yeah. And, and then it's ancient history. And while at heart is still out there, healing marriages and healing guys from all their stuff and doing a good work in the world. And it's because this, this crisis of gender, it's only gotten worse. Yeah. 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 I, I actually pulled up an old interview of you. It was a CNN video. It was one of the first ones that you, you did after. Oh yeah. Okay. So <laughs> there you are 20 years ago and it was so little P it was prophetic. I mean, it was, th- this is where we're going to be downstream. It was very fitting, not just for, 2002 or three, whenever that video came out. But I mean, for 2020, you're right. There's been a complete yes. erosion of, of the understanding at all of the, the dignity of gender and, and identity of the man and the woman. And, uh, it, you know, um, so anyways, I'm, I'm thankful. I think you're hitting the nail on the head. I've thought a lot about 
90s men's ministry and, and the ripening of all that was going on through the 90s that led up into your work. And my father and the church that I grew up in was caught up into that, where it was a group of guys that were finally, it was like their fist was right in the air. Finally, we can be a man, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> finally. <laughs> uh, okay. So theologically, most of my listeners are Reformed. I'm a Reformed Baptist, uh, confessionally Reformed. Our church is a, a Southern Baptist church, but we, uh, we ascribe to the London Baptist Confession. And I'm not a typical, uh, in the typical stream of those who, uh, you've got a wide beret of, of, you know, of, of readers and, and listeners, but a lot of my listeners are going to be, uh, this is going to be fresh for them because they've, they're not as familiar with you as some other theological. Wonderful. Yes. Okay. So yeah, I'm introducing wonderful. you. I'm trying Great. to introduce you to some, some people here. And, um, but one thing that your book in chapter one was so helpful at a critical time in my life was, and I just want to read this paragraph and then have you respond and just interact with it and then ask you a question at the end of it. Is that okay? Yeah, that'd be great. Okay. Here's what you said in chapter one of Fathered by God. What I'm suggesting is that we reframe the way we look at our lives as men. And the way we look at our lives and the way we look at our relationship with God, I also want to help you reframe the way you relate to other men, especially you fathers who are wondering how to raise boys. The reframing begins when we see that a man's life is a process of initiation into true masculinity. It's a series of stages that we soak in and progress through. And as for God, I believe that whatever he is primarily up to at any point in a boy or a man's life is initiating him. So much of what we misinterpret as hassles or trials or screw-ups on our part are in fact God fathering us, taking us through something in order to strengthen or heal us or dismantle some unholy thing in us. In other words, initiate us, a distinctly masculine venture. And at that particular stage, that paragraph jumped out to me. I was going through a very difficult ministry experience as an associate pastor at a church, and it helped me understand God's sovereignty through the lenses of fatherhood and not just God as sovereign judge, ruler of the universe. And it was so, so helpful. But what, what I want to ask you is why is it so important for men to understand their lives as a process of initiation into manhood? First off, let's look at it biblically, Jared, because the story, I think the story of the scriptures is that God wants to entrust men with influence and with his kingdom, he, he, you know, and it might be a career, it might be a PhD, it might be a congregation. Uh, he, he wants to entrust men. But the breakdown of most civilizations is that men get power and abuse it. Mm. They, they, they don't have the character, they don't have the wisdom, they are unfinished men. And so God's task is to mature boys into the kind of men that can handle influence, power, money, uh, a congregation, prestige, whatever it may be, a white coat, a political office, uh, you know, a corporation, a small business. He wants that. Hmm. That, that. That goes all the way back to rule and subdue, be fruitful yeah, and multiply. Good. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, but but the problem that we have in the world right now is you you have mostly boys walking around in men's bodies. Hmm. 
and that boy gets a marriage or he gets a family, that boy gets a congregation, and he doesn't have the internal maturity to handle it. Yeah. You know, so it, it, for example, if, if he desperately needs to be liked, he will not be a good leader because he mm-hmm. will shy away from difficult decisions uh, you know, that, that, that may bring up conflict, you see. And so it's the boy inside that can't handle the man's role and, and on and on it goes. You know, the boy that doesn't know how to be a father, the boy that doesn't know how to be married. And there's, you know, there's not shame in this. What we're talking about is unfinished men. So how, how, how does God, and you go back and you look at the scriptures, it's just incredible. David's story, Joseph's story, you know, uh, Gideon's story, uh, and even like Moses's story, you can see this, you can hmm. see the development, the progression of God maturing them to the place that he can entrust them with influence and power and prestige so that they do good for the world and not harm. That's good. Okay, so with that framework, would you just walk us through, just briefly walk us through then this, this process of initiation into the stages and then stop at King, and I want to ask some follow, follow-up questions about the sage, but particularly yeah. I want to bring pastors to consider uh, a few questions that I have for you about the King. So if you would just kind of walk yep. through that and get us to that point, and then I've yep. got a couple other uh, excerpts that I would like to read uh, back to you and, then, and, and talk yep. about. <clears throat> Yeah, so very briefly, I think the stages of the masculine journey, and again, you can see this in Moses's life, David's, you even see it in Jesus's life. You, you go from the stage of beloved son. Um, every little boy needs to know that his father loves him. Uh, this is my beloved son in whom I am most pleased. Even Jesus needed to know that. Uh, and so you go from beloved son into what I call the cowboy stage. It's the adolescent years of hard work and adventure that David in the field, you know, Moses in the, in the wilderness, both of them shepherds, uh, Jesus in the carpenter shop, um, into the stage, you go from beloved son to cowboy to warrior. Um, the young man, uh, learns to fight. He learns that there's a battle to be fought against evil in the world, and, and it may be with the pen more than the sword. It, it may be uh, through um, fighting for the hearts of people through the gospel of Jesus Christ, but he realizes there is a fight, and, and there's a warrior in him, and it's just very fascinating. You look at the Old Testament, and when they recruit young men for battle, it t- typically tends to be around the same age we do. It's around the age mm-hmm. of 17, 18, 19, mm-hmm. um, and the warrior then the stage of the lover, uh, he gets married, uh, stars his family, <clears throat> and hopefully a little bit of warrior has been shaped in him before lover, uh, or otherwise he's going to find himself in way over his head. Right. <laughs> uh, too, many, too many men make the woman the story, and the woman's not big enough to be your story. Uh, the woman is a wonderful thing, by the way. Genesis 2, it is not good for man to be alone. I mean, Eve is a wonderful Amen. blessing. <laughs> <clears throat> but he's got to learn how to be a lover. He's got to learn that a woman is not wired like a man. He's got to learn how to handle that. Um, so beloved son, cowboy, warrior, lover, and then he's ready to be a king. And the stage of the king is when you are entrusted with some kingdom. It might be, you might be the coach of the soccer team. You might be a math teacher in junior high. You, 
you or you may get a congregation, you know, you may have a Sunday school class, you, uh, you start a small company, and the, the king has a kingdom over which he rules, he presides. Uh, and, and it's a very, very challenging time in a man's life. I don't think most people appreciate how difficult the stage of the king is. And we can get back mm. into and talk about why that is. Um, but it's, the scripture says that David knew that God had made him king for the sake of his people, Israel. See, the, the, yeah. the basic problem of, of, of the kingdom is it's not about you. Yeah, um, but most good. most of us get, get into a little, we get a little kingdom going, and we think it's all about us. You mm-hmm. know? Uh, and then the final stage, you, you you serve as a king for about twenty years, so your forties and fifties, somewhere in your sixties, uh, mid sixties, you start moving into the stage of the sage. Mm-hmm. And this is the this is the elder at the gates, right? This is the uh, the dignity of old men is their white hair, as scripture says, it is their yeah. crown. You know, it's the stage of wisdom. And the sage is meant to be the counselor to kings and, and mm-hmm. to young, young warrior lovers. Because by this point in his life, he's got so much wisdom. He's learned mostly through mistakes. Mm-hmm. He's learned a lot. Um, and so the stage of the sage is a very, very rich part of a man's life where he may turn over the helm of the ship to a younger man, but he's still a man of influence because yeah. he is the, he is the counselor now. Okay. That's so good. Now let's, let's go back to the King and specifically talk pastoral ministry. Now I've been a, been in pastoral ministry for about 12 years now, which, which is not long. Um, by some most people's estimation for others who are just getting into ministry or maybe in seminary or just trying to navigate what pastoral ministry looks like and is it's like 12 years feels like you know a millennia um well let's but, just make it clear everybody those are dog years yeah <laughs> a year in pastoral ministry is seven years so that's right you, yeah yeah amen amen yeah. Uh, but what i've seen over the years is this, and I think the, the crisis of American pastoral ministry has been an embellished and over-embellished leadership culture that has given pastors the permission to see the kingdom as a kingdom that exists for them. So you get the vision, you gather people around you that know the vision, that will get on the bus, on your bus, and if they don't if they don't fall in line with your vision on your bus, they can go and find another church to be a part of that that more falls in line with the mission they want to be on. But the thing that, re- that I wrestle with consistently is, is isn't Jesus the, a good enough visionary for pastors to fall under, in line with? Do we really need more visionaries? Um, and so I understand to an extent what, uh, what's required of a leader to be out in front and to say, follow me as I follow Christ. But what I've seen in so many leadership cultures and and pastoral training, it's, it's more just follow me to, because follow me. I'm the expert. I've got the advice. I've got the wisdom here. I've got the insight from God. And then everybody else just, you know, gets crushed. And so you say on page 220 of, of and now I have the old version, the way of the wild heart here. Oh, that's it. That's awesome. Right. Yeah. Look out, you know, <laughs> um, and you say, and in, in this uh, chapter here, you say, when men find, uh, uh, we find men in power, but they're not true kings. So they, in other, in other words, you say they have the position, but they're not true. 
It's not as though the, it is not through initiation that they have come to the throne, nor do they have the heart of a king. And this is a dangerous situation indeed when a man is made king who is unfit to be one. And it has brought the ruin of many kingdoms, homes, families, churches, ministries, businesses, and nations. Why are there so many kings who get position and then crush people with that power? Because the internal world of that man, <clears throat> his inner life has not been shaped to handle both the honor and the trials, the pressures and the temptations of that role. Mm -hmm. So I, 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 I really want to say something that the, the expectations on the modern pastor leader are absolutely crushing. Hmm. He, not only does he need to be a brilliant communicator, he also needs to be something of an amateur psychologist and a trauma therapist. He's got to be something of a real estate agent. He has to have a very keen eye for business. He also needs to be something of a news analyst and be up on global affairs. When you, when you really look at what is expected uh, of the modern, it, this is a very, very difficult job. I mm -hmm. personally think it's the most difficult job on the planet. Uh, and so for a man to get into all that role with all that expectation, and, and let's be honest, folks, to have people looking to you every week for words of wisdom and counsel and inspiration is a pretty heady thing. Hmm. That that's cocaine, man. That stuff is <laughs> yeah. Woo, it's addictive. Hmm. It, it really is. And I'm speaking from personal experience here. Yeah. I, I literally got addicted to speaking hmm. and to the affirmation that yeah. I would get from speaking. Okay. Mm -hmm. So let's just be honest and say this is a really tough role with a really unique set of expectations and pressures and a whole lot of temptations around it. <clears throat> if the internal life of that man is underdeveloped, unformed within him, it will either crush him or he will blow it up. Yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's just, you know, and, it, it, and that's why the loss of fathering, the loss of a father culture, the loss of a masculine culture has been very, very damaging <clears throat> to the formation of good spiritual leaders. Yeah. I think that's really insightful. Those, you know, so many walk in pastoral ministry have just simply, if you look at the fit pastoral failure stories that 20 years ago, we wouldn't have known about, well, pre-internet 30 years ago, we wouldn't have known about it in yeah. such a large scale, but we hear story after story that comes out. And what we find is just the basics of the Christian faith of the man humbly walking before God and man had been abandoned years before. And then what ends up happening is you have these expectations and we cannot, we literally cannot handle all the expectations that are given, given to us. We cannot yep. be Jesus for people. We just can't. Yep. And uh, yep. it's really insightful. So I'm coming to you and you write about the sage stage, that this is going to be the shortest chapter when you're writing the book. When you wrote the book, you were in your 50s, I'm assuming, early 50s, maybe, late 40s. Is that <clears throat> Late 40s, yeah. Okay. 
So to write with humility about a state, a say the sage stage is to recognize, you know, if, if I just call myself a sage here and, <laughs> and uh, just market myself as a sage, well, that's kind of defeating the, the purpose uh, you say in the book. Yes. That you may not know you have a sage at the table because he's remaining quiet while the experts are rattling on and on and on talking about all we should do or shouldn't do. Yeah. And uh, this chapter for me became such a, I long to be this kind of man, the sage you describe. And I long for other men that I know. And, and one of the questions I have for you is why are there so few of these in the, it's the baby boomer generation in particular that I've had this ongoing wrestle back and forth with in pastoral ministry of, of wanting to learn from being arrogant toward the boomer generation, yes. but then also yes. being very angry with boomers because yep. I found so many of them just, I mean, intolerable to be honest. And as I have been intolerable to them, I'm sure. Um, but let me, I, I hate to read you your own words so much, but I think it's just so helpful um, because I want these guys, I want to be this man. And, and I come to you, whether you see it or not, as a man like this. So here's, here's what you say. The sage communes with God. It's an existence entirely different. And, and utterly superior to the life of the expert. Whatever counsel he offers, he draws you to God and not to self-reliance. Oh, yes, the sage has wisdom gleaned from years of experience. Wisdom is one of his great offerings. But he has learned not to lean upon his wisdom, knowing that often God asks things of us that seem counterintuitive. And thus his wisdom or expertise are fully submitted to his God. Humility might be one of the great dividing lines between the expert and the sage. The sage does not think he is one. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for, for a fool than for him, Proverbs 26, 12. Thus, we might not know we have a sage at the table, and this is what I was just quoting, for he will remain silent when the experts prattle on and on. The experts impress, the sage draws us to God. He offers a gift of presence, the richness of soul that has lived long with God. John, I read that and I thought, that's the man I want to be. That's the man I want to be. I don't want, I don't want to have to learn all these. I, I know that there are things that I can't learn except for a decade on end walking with God. I get that. But I want to be that kind of man now that doesn't have to be just Mr. Answer Man running around, you know, feeling like I'm the yep. smartest man in the room, not vocalizing yep. that. Externally, humility comes out, you know, I want you know, I want to be known as the guy that cares about God's glory more than anybody else. And please recognize that, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, there's iron. There's such irony and, and pride there. Why are there so few sages? Well, um, there may be more than, you know, okay. And, and because our culture at the same time that the collapse of gender was taking place. And, and by the way, like biblically, gender is, is inextricably linked in Genesis chapter one to how we bear the image of God. Let us yes. make man in our image, male and female. He made them. Gender is an enormously significant factor of human existence. And so when you have a culture that's confused about gender, you have a culture that's confused about the most basic things. So at the same time that that collapse was happening, and we are now reaping the fruit of all that collapse, right? 
Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time was the worship of adolescents. We have an adolescent culture. We mm. worship you. Yeah. Our, our heroes, you know, I, 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 I love sports probably like the next guy and I'm kind of addicted to global soccer right now. And, and that these guys, they're 18, 19, 20 years old. They're making millions of dollars. They're heroes. And by the time you're 30, man, you are, you are ancient. <laughs> and, and so that's just a, like, and just look at our pop idols, our musicians, that sort of thing. But let's be honest, let's look at our heroes in the church. And mm-hmm. they are the young, attractive, gifted, upfront people, mm-hmm. right? It's typically not the gray haired man or woman. It's right. So yeah. part of the reason we may have more sages around us than we know, but because we worship youth. We worship the young and the beautiful, uh, and it's really hurt the church uh, quite a bit, actually. Uh, You know, if you want to be a worship leader these days, you have to be gorgeous, male or female. You've got to be very Mm -hmm. handsome. You've got to be very talented and probably not past 28. Yeah. Right? That's horrible. Mm -hmm. That is. I agree. You hardly know anything about worship when you're 28. Yeah, you're right. So. Part of it has to do with the culture. Part of it has to do with this. I, I, I think there's a very, very deep spiritual reason. And it is we have valued knowledge of God more than we have valued experience of him. Hmm. And, and I think in particularly theologically rigorous uh, places, we, we, have, we have really locked onto, and, and by the way, I I believe in theological rigor, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, this is the most important truth we're handling in the world. We better handle it well. Right. <laughs> okay. But the problem is the sage, as I was trying to describe in that, it, you want a man who has walked with God mm-hmm. and, and, and can, t- that's as Moses, right? Mm-hmm. Th- this is the Old Testament prophets, right? This yeah. is, yeah. Okay. So uh, Paul, the apostles a phenomenal sage because he knows God. He doesn't mm-hmm. just know about God. He doesn't know facts about God. He knows God. Yeah. And, and we have not actually modeled that, that that is a life that is desirable. Mm-hmm. And then it's a life that is available to people. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think for those various reasons, we've kind of reached this point where the sage, they, they seem rare, don't they? Mm. Yeah. And I think the the untrained eye, you know, so for instance, in my life, I've I was at a church that was primarily older and there was a man that came to me and he was a seminary prof. I'm not a seminary prof. He was a university, uh, Southern Illinois University, Saluki professor at SIU. It's a research institute in our town. And um, he had recently retired. This guy is sharp, worked for the Reagan administration in the 80s. And he came to me, and he's in his 60s. And I was floored because my other experience with, with uh, a lot just – Okay, they, they, and I needed it. They wanted to teach. They wanted to teach. They wanted to teach. They wanted to teach. But this man came to me and he said, Jared, I have so much to learn from you. This, and this wow. humility. And I remember thinking like, no, you don't. You're the man I want to learn from. You're yes. the man I want to be. And I was yes. on a collision course with this sage. And 
I, I remember thinking, this is the kind of guy I want to be in my 60s. I, yeah. He is the one teaching me right now. That, and he's modeling that and showing me, here's how much you have to learn by saying, I have a lot to learn from you. And that, yeah. w- that humility was astounding to me. And I, where I treasure his friendship to this day. One of the things I've tried uh, talking to young guys about is, you know, a lot of baby boomer pastors experienced a lot of uh, time living in parsonages, and they all became pastors. It seems like the guys that are in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, it's like these guys became pastors when they were, you know, 17 years old. I mean, right. I mean, it was, they were thrust into this work due to, due to war, cultural pressures, whatever it may have been. It was like there was a vacuum of church leadership in their era, and they stepped in and were leading at, you know, churches at 22 years old. And then when you live in a parsonage for 30 years and you're in your fifties and sixties and you see a bunch of young, arrogant millennial pastors over the last 15 years uh, wanting to pastor, I become now more sympathetic realizing, my goodness, we young leaders are a threat to livelihood. And if millennials don't learn both positive and negative from baby boomer men in particular, all that we can learn from the positive and all that we can learn from the negative, we're going to find ourselves 30 years down the road, financially unable to formally, you know, quote unquote, retire and pushing away and doing the same thing we felt frustrated with 30 years before, you know, pushing young leaders away because we feel threatened by them because I'm, I'm the pastor here. And so if we, as you know, I'm 36 and most of my listeners are, are younger or around that, age. And if we're, if we walk into the rest of our life as unfinished men, if we don't get the message of fathered by God and develop internally as godly men, we're going to continue to walk and crush people around us or walk in a crushed existence ourselves. And um, so, you know, for me, that's a long statement, but I've learned to be sympathetic, realizing that I'm doomed to make some of the same mistakes if I don't learn from them. Yes, exactly. Not to mention lonely. You, you'll you'll do damage, but you'll also just find yourself immensely lonely. Mm. That, that every man still needs fathering. Mm. I do. We yeah. all do. You want older men in your life, guys. Like that. Mm. This is this is initiation one hundred and one. Get an older man in your life, mm. even if he is a plumber. I guarantee you that having coffee with him is going to be a wonderful experience for your soul. You, you got to have some older men around you at every stage of your life, whether you're six or 60. Hmm. That's good. Yeah. So if you could give yourself advice, young John Eldridge advice, if you could go back, this is kind of changing the topic here a little bit, but if you go back and talk to yourself at 25, what, I mean, you probably, you could probably write a book on this, but what would you, what quick counsel would you give to yourself as a 25 year old man? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> a couple things. Um, one, I would say you need to forgive your dad hmm. because I went into my uh, professional years with a great mistrust of older men. I didn't trust them. And, and I, would, I would push hard against the men who were over me, whether they were senior pastors, I worked, I worked in the local church, or they were, I, then I moved into ministries and they might've been you know, the heads of departments or the president of a ministry. Um, I didn't trust them. 
And, and that was my brokenness. It, and it had to do with, John, you need to forgive your dad because you need older men in your life and you're not open to it right now. I was not open to it. The other thing mm. I, I, I would love to say to him right now is I want to I want to I want to I want to say to my younger self, it's going to happen. Take a breath. Mm. It's going to happen because when you're young, you're, you're, you're striving and fighting and climbing and you, 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 you got dreams and you got passions for Christ. Let's go change the world for Christ. You know, that's all good. But, but to have someone come alongside and say, take a deep breath. It's going to happen. It's just going to take a little longer than you think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And just the kindness of, I was trying to make it all happen by the time I was 29. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, I ask everyone I interview, and I just want to set you up here. John Eldridge, why do you love Jesus so much? There's no one like him. Mm. I mean, come on, folks. There's no one like him. He, he is the most wonderful friend. He is the most brilliant leader. He is so phenomenally kind with our brokenness. He is so phenomenally generous with his kingdom. He shares his kingdom with us. It's just mm. phenomenal. Like he, yeah. he, he is life. He is life. There, there is no other. Mm. And, and to have him is to have everything. And to be without him is desolation. Hmm. That's good. Well, John, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to us about Jesus. And, you know, there is no one like him, you know? I mean, None. He's, our, he's our king, you know? I mean, yes. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit theshepherdscrook.co. For care and counsel, please call, text, or email to set up a session. You can follow The Shepherd's Crook on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And please consider sharing this episode and leaving a review on iTunes or whatever other podcast platform you use. And let me encourage you to remember Jesus Christ.